foundations of the world, and it was steadfast and it was focused on a sinful humanity. And that love is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. In our reading tonight, Jesus is at the climax of his ministry. If you've been following me in the Gospel of John, he's at the climax of his ministry. 33 years he walked the earth. And the last three years of his life was this intense ministry. And now the climax. Dr. Vern Poitras from Westminster Theological Seminary said, Jesus whole life on earth was a life in which he served but his service came to a climax when he gave his life as a ransom for many John's gospel is built on seven signs some theologians say eight signs he turned water into wine. You start in the second chapter of John. He heals an official son. He heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water and stills a storm. He heals a blind man from birth. Raises Lazarus from the dead. And here's what some theologians say the eighth sign, but this was after the resurrection. Causes an abundant catch of fish. Why did John base his whole gospel around seven signs? These signs pointed to who Jesus was. It pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there would be no mistake of who he was and what he did and what he came for. But most missed it. They missed it. And today... Most miss the greatest sign, the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray if you're a Christian, this message will encourage your heart and drive away any indifference you may have towards the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We see a lot of indifference today. Pastor Brian and I consistently talk about that. Within the church, there's a lot of indifference. People sometimes, I'm not necessarily sonship, but... It could uh, apply to sonship too. But a lot of people are so indifferent. They come and they talk about the cross of Christ as if it was something that happened in the history, past history. I pray this message today, this text today will drive away any indifference. And I also pray if you're not a genuine believer, this message will drive you to the Savior. Would you mind standing with me? For the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at John chapter 19 verse 16. Second half of verse 16 to verse 30. So they took Jesus and went out. Bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Which in Aramaic is called Gagatha. There they crucified him. And with them two others one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. By st but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, my simple, short prayer is this. Please open up our eyes to the significance of the crucifixion of your beloved son. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to read you a little story from Thomas Lindbergh's book, Written in Blood. Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary, the doctor asked. Jonathan, Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. And then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's, Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaky, broke the silence. Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny hesitated, why his lips had trembled when he had agreed to donate his blood. He thought he was giving his blood to his sister, and he thought it meant giving up his life. In that brief moment, he made a great decision. Johnny, fortunately, didn't have to die to save his sister. Each of us, however, has a condition more serious than Mary's, and it required Jesus to give not just his blood, but his life. And here, the challenge to you tonight, Christ finished the work of redemption on the cross and you reap the benefits. Three points from this text. First point is you have been crucified with Christ. Second point is you have a Savior who cares. And the third point, you have been redeemed solely by Christ's finished work. Now I'm only going to give point one tonight because there's too much in it. And I don't want to miss anything. And the next time I speak, I'll go to point two and then to point three. Point one, you have been crucified with Christ. Verse 16 to 18 again. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And once again, the cross was the climax of redemptive history. It shows the greatness beyond anyone's understanding, greater than my understanding, greater than your understanding, of God's love for sinners. And at the same time, hear me, please hear me. And at the same time, it shows the deep, deep depravity of every human heart that has ever lived or ever will live. God hates sin. Make no mistake about that. And there is no better way to see how much hatred He has for sin than the cross of His only Son, Jesus Christ. You know what happened at the cross? Mercy met with judgment. Mercy and judgment met at the cross. 
And the reason why I said there's no better way to see how much hatred he has for sin is there is where he poured out his full wrath against sin on his son, on the spotless Lamb of God for our sins. The cross is where mercy and judgment met. Mercy to redeem lost sinners and judgment to punish sin. And if you're a believer, your sin still had to be punished. But instead of you paying for your sins, Christ became the propitiation for your sins. He satisfied the just demands of God's wrath on your behalf. And as we've seen, and we'll continue to see in John's gospel, Jesus is not a victim, but the victor. As Pastor Brian gave that exhortation, it was the Lord's will to crush his son. Jesus was never, never the victim. Don't ever think that Jesus was the victim. We even see in the cross of Jesus Christ, his majesty and glory on display. Let's get into our text. The first thing we see in Christ's journey to the crucifixion site was Jesus willingly. He willingly going to the place outside of Jerusalem, which is called Golgotha, to be crucified, bearing or carrying his own cross. Now, here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to do something a little different. Usually, when I break down a text and I give the points, I... I do the interpretation and then I sprinkle application throughout it. I know Pastor Brian usually does the application at the end, but today I'm going to do the application at the end. There's no right or wrong way to do it, but I want to give you the theological understanding today of this text, and then I'm going to go into the application. So the first thing we see in, in, in his journey was he willingly goes outside of Jerusalem. To be crucified. And he carried his own cross. He went voluntarily. Not like condemned prisoners. Who would be forced to go out to the execution. I know if I was being executed. They would have to force me. I mean I wouldn't willingly go. Okay you know. There's the electric chair. I'm going to walk right to it. You know. Uh, no I would, I would have to be forced. But Jesus went voluntarily. Because Jesus. He said. He, he said no one takes my life. I lay it down. On my own accord. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You know why? Jesus was in full control. Jesus was in full control. He could have stopped it at any time. He said, I could summon my father and have 12 legions of angels come. He was also led outside of Jerusalem. Very significant. This was a fulfillment of scripture. The condemned person in the Old Testament was stoned outside the camp of Israel. Numbers 15.36 And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Also the sin offerings in the Old Testament were brought outside the camp. Exodus 29.14 But the flesh of the bull and its skins and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And the writer of Hebrews understood this very well as he writes in chapter 13 verses 11 and 12 For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see, Jesus is the final sin offering who was brought outside the camp and condemned to death. Just as the scriptures tell us. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, commenting on Hebrews 13.12 in its application said all true Christians must go to him spiritually speaking to the place of reproach and rejection why stay in Jerusalem when it is not your city asked the writer why identify with the old covenant law when it has been done away with, with Christ we go outside the camp too don't we reproach and rejection 
And it says also he carried his own cross. We read in Genesis 22 when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, who was the son of the promise. We read in verse, the first half of verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. I, I can't even imagine what that was like if the Lord told me, sacrifice your son John Paul. I can't even imagine what that was like. I would probably be disobedient. I don't know. How could I sacrifice my own son? But that's what God told Abraham. And Abraham took the wood for the sacrifice and laid it on his son. And many theologians believe this is what they call typology. Abraham is like God the Father and Isaac like Jesus. The way Abraham put the wood of the burnt offering on Isaac, God the Father used sinful men to lay the wood of the final burnt offering on his son Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus bore his own cross. Now the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, say that the soldiers compelled Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. Why does John eliminate this? We don't know. But we can't assume that Christ bearing his own cross collapsed on the way and Simon was forced to carry it for Jesus. Dr. Donald Carson said concerning this, even though John makes room for the sufferings, he greatly emphasizes the sovereign plan of the Father and the Son's obedience. And so he reports rightly that Jesus carried his own cross. So I think, as I was studying this text, I think John wanted us to focus on Christ laying down his life for us alone. Simon the Cyrene didn't contribute to our salvation. By no stretch of the imagination. Jesus bore his own cross. Make no mistake about that. And when they got to Golgotha, the place of the skull, it was there they crucified Jesus between two thieves. Now Isaiah said this about 700 years earlier, that Messiah would be, what? Numbered with the transgressors. Hold that thought, okay? He was numbered with the transgressors between two thieves. I want to interject something here before I continue. If you read any of the Gospels, there's not a prolonged focus on any of the Gospels on Christ's crucifixion. Let me read what Dr. Leon Morris says about that. John describes the horror that was crucifixion in a single word. As in the case of scourging, he simply mentions the fact and passes on. Popular piety, both Protestant and Catholic, has often emphasized the sufferings of Jesus. It has reflected on what happened and has dwelt on the anguish the Savior suffered. None of the Gospels does this. The evangelist records the fact and let it go at that. The death of Jesus for sinners was their concern. They make no attempt to play on the heartstrings of their readers. Now we see movies and plays about Jesus' crucifixion. And there's a tendency to feel so sorry for Jesus. The passion of the Christ. I saw it. And you moved. That's not the gospel writer's intent. He doesn't want us to feel sorry for Jesus. As if Jesus was some poor victim. We're the poor victims. Jesus doesn't want your sympathy. Amen. He wanted to do the will of his Father for redemption of lost sinners. That was his purpose. That was his goal. That was what the gospel writers wanted to communicate. And that is the way we should understand it. When Jesus was carrying his cross, there were women following him. And they were weeping. You remember this passage? And Jesus didn't thank them for weeping for him, but said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, because there's coming destruction on Jerusalem in a few years. We should weep for our own sin. So continuing the passion, Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Jesus died with sinners. 
He died a sinful death. Dr. Morris said, Jesus was one with sinners in his death. Jesus was crucified and died the way you and I should die because of our sin. And Luke's account tells us that one of the thieves rebuked the other thief for reviling Jesus and then asked Jesus to remember him when Jesus entered his kingdom. Most of us remember that story. And Jesus assured him that day that he would be with him in paradise. It's amazing. In the midst of suffering and agonizing death, Jesus is still ministering love, grace, and mercy. I've been going to the dentist these past few months. It's funny, I retired from my job. I had no problems for 40 years with my teeth. I retired from my job. Don't have coverage on dentists anymore. And all of a sudden I have thousands of dollars worth of work I need done. Cavities, root canals, bridges. And I was in anger. I was in... I was... <laughs> I was suffering. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of the redemption of all sinners. I was thinking, Lord, get me out of here and get me quickly out of here because my mouth is killing me. Jesus is the epitome of selflessness. What we read in next in verse 19 is Pilate putting an inscription on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And interestingly... In verse 20, John tells us that Pilate had written it in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, the commonly spoken languages in the first century Palestine. Everyone in the crowd was able to read it, assuming they were able to read. This was a common practice by the Romans to have an inscription of the criminal's crime. It was also a warning to the crowd, don't mess with the Romans. If you mess with the Romans and disobey their laws, this is what can happen to you. But Jesus had no crime, and Pilate knew that. Pilate knew that. And the play card simply said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was probably Pilate's last act of revenge on the Jews for coercing him into condemning Jesus. They manipulated. He was... The Jews didn't like Pilate. Pilate didn't like the Jews. So he was doing that, not with right motives, but to get back at the Jews. Well, they didn't like that. And verse 21 says, they kept saying, in the Greek, it's like an ongoing thing. Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate literally said in verse 22, and this is important. This is what it literally means. What I have written, I have written. And it will always remain written. Pilate was right. He was right. Even though he didn't know what he was saying. Just like Annas, what, uh, I mean Caiaphas, when he prophesied, didn't know what he was saying. But God used these men to bring eternal truth out. He was right. Jesus is king and will always remain king. But he's not just the king of the Jews. He was king of the Gentiles. He was king of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and always will be. Revelation says, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Even at his birth, wise men came and worshipped him. Palm Sunday, the crowds hailed him as king. In chapter 18, before Pilate, Jesus didn't deny his kingship. The Bible never denies the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. What Pilate wrote, he wouldn't change. And what God wrote, he will never change. And the soldiers crucified Jesus. Verses 23 and 24 says, They took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lights. So the soldiers did these things. The custom was that the soldiers would divide the criminals' clothing amongst themselves. Now it says there were four soldiers. Usually there's eight, but the text, because of the four 
uh, because of the clothing divided into four, we assume that there was only four soldiers. And Jesus also had a seamless tunic, which was an undergarment. It was probably an expensive undergarment. So they didn't want to tear it, so they gambled for it. How nice. Gambling for the Son of God's clothing. By the way, Jesus, the Son of God, is stripped of all his garments, which suggests that he had to bear the shame of being made a public spectacle. Now I want you to think about this. And once again, I'm going to refer back to Pastor Brian's opening statement on Isaiah. Your Lord and your Savior was on the cross naked, if you can bear that. He took your nakedness. I'm not talking about physical nakedness. Jesus was physically naked on the cross. They made a public spectacle of him. The Son of God bore your shame and my shame. Remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, for the first time they felt fear and shame when they realized they were naked. Remember that in Genesis 3? And they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. It was a work of their own hands. They no longer felt secure and innocent because they weren't. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they weren't supposed to. But their own works of covering themselves was not good enough. So God, in His infinite mercy, covered their nakedness and shame with animal skins. The first physical death, the shedding of blood, was in Genesis 3. Which was an animal instead of Adam and Eve. And God used the skins to cover them. The work of grace, the work of His hands. And I believe that was a shadow of the reality that one day Christ was going to die a death and He bore our shame and He bore our nakedness. We are covered now with His righteousness and we are no longer naked if we are in Christ. The infinite merit of Christ goes beyond our comprehension. Another thing we need to see is the soldiers divided Jesus' clothing and gambled for for the tunic and unbeknown to them fulfilled scripture. Psalm 22 verse 18. David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit prophesied and said, They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. See God said this would happen on this day thousands of years before it happened. What is John telling us? He wants us to know God is sovereign. God is in control and not puny man. We, we get so worried about today, about what's going on in America. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. Of course we should be concerned. But God is in control. Amen. He is absolutely in control. Not man. Not the president. No one is in control but God. Thank God for our president. And we should pray for our president. But God is ultimately in control. There's no accident what happened with Jesus Christ. It was planned, orchestrated by God himself. He was orchestrating the whole passion of Christ for his purpose and his glory. God is sovereign. History belongs to God. As the old saying goes, history is what? His story. Nothing in Christ's life happened by accident. From his incarnation to his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He directed all things concerning Christ's passion for lost sinners. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why the cross get into our application. That was a little theological look at what that text was saying. How does Christ's death apply to your life? Now here's where the rubber meets the road. Yes, you are forgiven of your sins because of his death, right? We're forgiven of our sins if you're a believer in Christ. 
Uh, Peter tells us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Also, because of his death, you have the assurance of heaven. Paul told the Philippian church that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Oh, I can't wait for that. I don't have to go to the dentist anymore. Not only do we inherit heaven, but we're going to have glorified bodies. These are beautiful promises that we possess as Christians. And comfort our hearts, don't they? These promises comfort our hearts to the core, knowing full well we don't deserve it. But Christ purchased them for you through his death. We see three things that Christ's cross accomplished. Redemption. Jesus bought back sinners from our bondage to sin by our ransom payment. Propitiation. Jesus satisfied God's wrath against us because of our sin. And justification. We are now declared righteous in God's sight. Those are beautiful promises. Those are promises we love to confess. We love to tell people about. But let's talk about another way Christ's death applies to the believer's life. Which we may not be so thrilled about. And that's the first point. You have been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, you the believer died with him. Did you know that? Galatians 2.20 Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, you died with Christ and now you're dead to sin. The old you has died. The old you no longer lives. Now the crucified, resurrected Christ lives his life through you by his spirit. And Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 11. Let's turn to that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, that's important, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So that's why we were baptized into his death, so we can walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, okay, he's saying we had to be united with him in his death. That's why Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in, his, in a resurrection like his. Okay, there's always the cross first before the resurrected life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we have to die to self, be made alive to Christ, and we're dead to sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's the bottom line. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So, you've been crucified with Christ. That's point one. Now here's a sub-point. And the reason why I'm telling you sub-point, because I don't have the other two points, I'm going to do that next time. So I might as well get into the sub-points. Because you have been crucified with Christ, you bear your own cross. John tells us that Christ bore his own cross, and he bore it for us, for sin. We don't bear our cross for sin. We bear it because of the gospel. Because we have to deny ourselves. And we'll talk about that. Now let me go ahead of myself. There's a lot of misunderstanding 
And I hear it all the time, what it means to bear our cross. So let me say a few things. It's not your mother-in-law. Okay? It's not your husband. It's not your wife or your children. That's not your cross. Your sickness is not your cross. Your problems, whether it be financial, physical, emotional, that is not your cross. That is so foreign to biblical understanding of what the cross is for the Christian. That is not your cross. And we hear Christians all the time. They, they, they maybe have children that are sick or something. Oh, that's their cross. They got No, that's not the cross Christ was talking about. So if I may correct your thinking or let the Bible correct your thinking, please. What is the Christian cross? The cross meant one thing for the first century people. You know what that was? Death. Death. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, listen, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would what? Save his life will what? Will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We hear much in Christianity today, they don't preach this. They skip over this. There were many in Jesus' day following him. There are many today who think they're following Jesus. But what Jesus says is, listen, if you really would come after me, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus was and still is advocating total commitment, total surrender. That's what he wants. It's death to self and alive to Christ. You're not dying, as one commentator said, to one's personal identity as a distinct individual. You're not dying to your personality. You're dying to the old man, the sinful man, the flesh, the unredeemed self. That's what you're dying to. Paul said this in Romans 6. He said, should I continue to sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid, one of the strongest Greek languages that he used. God forbid that we should think like that. Doesn't mean that we'll never sin again? No. But we're dead to sin. It doesn't master us anymore. And as as John MacArthur said, we're progressively being free from sin as we walk the Christian life. As the sanctifying work of grace in our hearts on a daily basis happens. Why do we die to the old man? Because nothing good dwells in your flesh. It is hostile towards God. Paul said in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Nothing is good in the flesh. You know, Pastor Brian and I always talk about, I think it was Spurgeon, who said, I'm daily reminded that nothing good dwells in me. You crucified to yourself. You die to yourself. And only you can bear your own cross. The pastor can't bear your cross. Your parents can't bear your cross. Your children can't bear your cross. Only you can bear your cross. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear what? His own cross. And come after me cannot be my disciple. Now I didn't say that. Jesus said that. This applies to me too. I have to bear my own cross to be his disciple. This is what the righteous do. This is what the person who has been born again does. And we do it with joy. We mean, I bear my own cross with joy. Yes, you do it with joy. Hebrews 12, 2, because Jesus looked beyond the cross. Let's read Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, or seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy Jesus had was accomplishing his Father's will, 
and is now exalted to his right hand. Our joy in bearing our cross is doing the Father's will and glorifying him. And one day we will be exalted, not as deity, as Jesus was, but we will reign with him. As Second Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. God's sanctifying work, here's my encouragement to you, God's sanctifying work of grace in your heart will accomplish this for you. It's not something you just decide to do. What happens to the born again, regenerated Christian is now he has a desire to pick up the cross and follow Christ. But he also has the old man that's pulling against it. But God's sanctifying work of grace in our hearts will help us to persevere until the end. Because you have been crucified with Christ, sub point two, or sub point B, I should say, you are surrounded by evil. You're surrounded by evil. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. You are surrounded by an evil world. Listen, you don't live in church. You don't, we don't live here. We live in a, a fallen world. We come here to celebrate and be refreshed by the saints. We come here to provoke one another to love and good works, as the writer of Hebrews says. But we don't live here. And then we go on to the evil world. But we should make every opportunity to minister the gospel to the people in this world. You need to stop complaining about how terrible and evil people are and start sharing the gospel with them. Christ was surrounded by sinners and yet ministered to one of the thieves in the midst of tremendous pain and suffering. I had one time, uh, Mary and I, we worked together for many years. And there was this one gentleman... When I was talking to him and I was saying, we were talking about sharing the gospel. He goes, oh, I'll never share the gospel with these people. <laughs> I mean, we laugh at it, but it's really a serious, serious thing to say something like that. I'm not, who did Christ come for? What are you going to go to the religious people of the world? They need Christ too. Christ came for a broken humanity, for lost sinners. Don't be scared, annoyed, intimidated, or angry at sinners in this world, knowing that you were once very much a part of it until Christ saved you. Because you have been crucified with Christ, subpoint C, you preach the kingdom without prejudice. Pilate wrote the inscription in languages that everyone could understand. And I believe that was the providence of Almighty God. Even though most read it, they didn't understand it, that Jesus was the King of the Jews, the Gentiles, and the whole universe. That's what the bottom line is. Pilate, no doubt, as I said before, meant it for revenge on the Jews, but God meant it for truth. Dr. Gary Berg said, Pilate has in effect placed on public display an announcement for the world for the world. Jesus' kingship is now available for the entire world to see. And we know that's going to happen one day when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We ought to preach the gospel not only to the Jews, not only to the Gentiles, not only to the people we like, but to every nation, tribe, and tongue without prejudice. I find out, I found out personally that the very people I don't want to speak the gospel to because maybe I don't care for them are usually the people that when I speak to them are the most receptive people when it comes to the gospel. And the people I do want to share the gospel, the people I think, oh, they're going to be receptive. They're the ones that reject it. But even when you preach the gospel without prejudice, some will protest. When the Jews saw the inscription, they protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. They didn't like that. They didn't like that. Because in their evil minds, they wanted a glorious Messiah who would also conquer Rome. 
And free them from the oppression. Not understanding that the Messiah had to suffer first. And then enter his glory. But what Pilate wrote. He wrote. And by God's providence. It was not changed. People will protest the gospel. Don't water it down. What God wrote, he wrote. And you proclaim the gospel just the way it's written. We have too many today, especially when you turn on the TV, too many that are watering down the gospel and changing its meaning. Why? Because God's word doesn't change. What God has written, God has written. And will always remain written. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Who am I to change it? You and I are to proclaim the gospel without prejudice as it is written. Rosaria Butterfield is a writer. She's a speaker, a homemaker, and former tenured professor at English at Syracuse University. She was in a lesbian lifestyle, and God, through a wise pastor, saved her. And she came to faith in Christ. And my wife Kim has been reading one of her books and shared with me one of the things she said. And she said this, well, once, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, once she was asked by a church to, not to say homosexuality is a sin, but rather it's your opinion that it's a sin. Her response was one of wisdom. She responded by saying, and I love this, and once again I'm paraphrasing, and I may not say it exactly how she said it. She said, how can I take a universal truth and make it into an opinion? Don't ever take God's word, which is a universal truth, and make it into your opinion. You never say, well, this is what the gospel means to me. No, this is what God says, and what He has written, He has written, and will always remain written. There's a bumper sticker, many of you may have remembered it many years ago. It said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, one day, I was with a good friend, Charlie Gallagher, he's a good friend of mine to this day. And when I pointed out the bumper sticker to him, he said, no. God said it, and that settles it whether you believe it or not. (laughs) Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Because you have been crucified with Christ, you will be treated shamefully. The soldiers treated Jesus shamefully and disrespectfully to the point of neglecting his atoning death. They stripped him of his clothing, divided it, and gambled for the last piece while he was dying on the cross. You see, they were cold-hearted. As Christians, don't think the world is going to treat you with respect concerning your faith. If they treated Jesus this way, they're going to treat you this way. Jesus said that in John 15. Yes. They will persecute you, and in some countries, beat you and kill you just because you're a Christian. Because you're identified with Christ to the point that they will neglect the gospel of Jesus Christ that you preach to them. This is the Christian guarantee. More than likely, at some point in your life, you will be treated shamefully and disrespectfully. It's going to happen one, one way or another. Maybe not like it happens in North Korea or Sudan or China to those Christians that are suffering persecution in that way and how they're being dis, disrespected and mistreated. But it's going to happen some way if you're a genuine believer in Christ. And don't be surprised when it does happen. It doesn't mean every non-believer is going to treat us disrespectfully. It just means you will at one point. Let me conclude here. I just want to kind of summarize what I spoke on. Christ was crucified, but you reap the benefits. Your sins are forgiven. Your name is written in heaven. You have been crucified with your Savior. And because of that, you bear your own cross. You're surrounded by evil. You preach the kingdom without prejudice. Yes, some will protest, but God's word doesn't change. And finally, you're going to be treated shamefully. Now you might think, I don't know how I can bear this. 
You can bear your sins being forgiven. You can bear going to heaven. But crucified with Christ and his implications, all the implications, I don't know if I can bear that. That's hard. It is. But you need to remember this. Jesus promised that the Father sent you the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll give you the strength you need. He will even give you the will and the power to do what He asks of you. Do you realize that? God gives you the will and the power to do what He asks of you? Do you believe that? There's a hymn called The Wonderful Cross. Let me read the first verse and the chorus. When I surveyed the wonderful cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, bids me to come and die, and find that I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, all who gathered here by grace draw near, and bless your name. Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross. It cost him his life. Let's never forget that. And believers, we reap the benefits. If you don't know Christ, let me say your sins are not forgiven. But there's good news. Jesus took on sin even though there was no sin in him. If you believe in Christ like one of the repentant thieves on the cross did, Christ will take your sin upon himself and call upon him. Plead with Him for His mercy and His grace. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. And if you've done that, speak to Pastor Brian or myself or someone. Tell them, and we'll talk to you about the cross of Christ and salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you what He did for us. And the benefits we reap from it. Thank you that whatever you ask us to do, because of the cross, the Holy Spirit is now in our lives. And whatever you ask us to do, to pick up our cross and follow you, to deny ourselves, to, to be treated shamefully, and all its implications of the cross, and what it means for us to be crucified, you will give us the power to do what you ask us to do. So God, I pray that the people here are encouraged. I pray that the people here will walk out changed and fall in love with you in a greater way. Focus on what you've done for them. And we know, God, three days after your death, you rose again. You rose again, and you had victory over sin, over death, and over the flesh and the world and the devil. We thank you, God. That's eternal promises that we can't change. What you have written, you have written, and will always remain written. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.